This is hell. The This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party is finally here. Celebrate 26 years of This Is Hell airing on Chicago's Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM on Saturday, September 17th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood with doors opening at 3 p.m. Again, that's at Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from this here studio. There will be live music, a raffle, an art show, and more. The musical lineup includes at 4 p.m. Take Yokoyama's Mahjong Crib. Take is one of Chicago's most promising young composers. With Mahjong Crib, Yokoyama brings a new interpretation to post-bop jazz with his deep love for rhythm. Fela Kuti once said, music is our spiritual game. For Take, that means Mahjong, an Asian gamble. Take Yokoyama's Mahjong Club will be followed at 7 p.m. by Pure Cane Trio featuring Ted Sirota on drums, Dan Chase on organ, and Dave Miller on guitar. The Pure Cane Trio is a new creation from drummer Ted Sirota. Featuring guitar and organ, the trio features a jazz fusion of many genres, such as jazz mixed with funk and R.B., Brazilian calypso, reggae, Latin, and African music. Then at 10 p.m., a new uh, project by Takeo Kayama, an improv group called Trinity Star Ultra. They take the stage again at 10 p.m. There will be a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes, including This Is Hell merchandise and a whole bunch more, including autographed copies of the New York Times best-selling novels, Kitchens of the Great Midwest and the Lager Queen of Minnesota by J. Ryan Straddle, who was a contributor to the show almost at its very beginning. J. Ryan, you, some of you at least may remember, was the eccentric whose satirical columns were so spot on that his column, Georgia Town Reelects Comatose Mayor, ended up being mentioned in Ann Lander's column. We will also be raffling off an autographed copy of a book that was supposed to be featured on last week's show. That is, until I had a horrible reaction from getting both the Omicron booster and the new flu shot at the same time. Lindsay Bergon's Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods, an autographed copy of a book we will be featuring on this week's show, Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy by James Witt. We'll also have a book by Matt Huber, which was supposed to be featured on last week's show, but again, will be on next week's show, and that is about a book called Climate Change and Class Struggle. We'll also have the two-volume Encyclopedia of Hell set from uh, Martin Olson. Let's see, uh, a board game from Tesla Collective called Super Cats Fight Fascism, a gift box of organic CBD tinctures, and I believe wild rice as well from Maine's Wild Folk Farms, prints by the outstanding anarchist printers at Kennedy Prints in Detroit's McDougal Hunt neighborhood. And again, much, much more. We will also have the closing of the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art Art Show featuring some very hellish art, and it's all happening during summer's final weekend, Saturday, September 17th, with doors opening at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is Hell, streaming live and podcast shortly after. During the week, 
at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere happens every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in an abbreviated one-hour version weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com, thrice weekly on the UK-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at beware-theradio.com. And we are now very proud and happy to be airing on CKUW-FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the University of Winnipeg. If you would like to hear This Is Hell on your local favorite radio station, whether it's a public radio station or a community radio station, email us at chuck at thisishell.com or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to our show and why you'd love to hear it carried in your community. Nobody, including me, should ever be surprised when the United States Supreme Court rules against the will of the people. The current state of what can be called the Trump Court is the norm. It's not some extreme anomaly. The court never has and never will be at the vanguard of expanding liberty, freedom, and equality. That's not what it was meant to do by the so-called founding fathers. Sure, civil rights expanded under the Warren Court, but that was an aberration. And even then, as today's guest points out in beginning this dismantlement of legal segregation, the Warren Court would not, in fact, threaten the country's central institutions of power and wealth, which, if anything, had by then come to find American-style apartheid inimical to their interests. In a few minutes, historian, writer, and editor Steve Frazier returns to This Is Hell to discuss his new Tom Dispatch article, The Trump Supreme Court is Nothing New, A History of the Tyranny of the Supremes. Steve has appeared here on This Is Hell several times in the past. He was on the show most recently back in 2018 when we discussed his book, Class Matters, The Strange Career of an American Delusion. You can hear that discussion as well as our 2016 talk with Steve at thisishell.com by searching on his last name Frazier, F-R-A-S-E-R, when we talked about uh, his then-just-published book, The Limousine Liberal, How an Incendiary Image United the Right and Fractured America. That was selected by our listeners that year as one of our favorite books, one of their favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2016, and uh, we then replayed that interview over the holiday season during our best of recap for the year. Steve's research and writing has pursued uh, two main lines of inquiry, labor history and the history of American capitalism. Steve's most recent book is Mongrel Firebugs and Men of Property, Capitalism and Class Conflict in American History. He is also the author of The Age of Acquiescence, The Life and Death of American Resistance to Organized Wealth and Power. He's a co-founder and co-editor of the American Empire Project, which is a response to the changes that have occurred in America's strategic thinking as well as in its military and economic posture. You can find out more about the project at AmericanEmpireProject.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz, producing is Sebastian Vopper. Sebastian, it's been a couple weeks. How have you been and what the hell have you been up to, sir? Eh, um, I'm good. Uh, we spent another weekend in Michigan. <laughs> Jesus, what's going on with you in Michigan? <laughs> uh, yeah, so this weekend we went to uh, my wife's 20th high school uh, anniversary. In what town? Uh, Kalamazoo. Oh, okay. 
So it's not that far of a drive. It's not like you're going all the way to the Mackinac Island. It's no, like a couple no, hours. no. It's just like another like another time that we uh, pass. Like this, like the third time within like three months. No, f- the fourth time within three months that we pass through the you know like lower Lake Michigan bend there <laughs> yeah, through, through Gary, Gary and everything where you have to roll up your windows and turn off your uh, recirculating yeah, air. Yeah, basically. Um, and also, it's been the first time uh, that I've actually been inside an American. I mean, actually, technically, the second time that I've been inside an American uh, high school. Um, but still, it's it's always kind of weird uh, if you're not used to that or didn't grow up with that, uh, just to see what that looks like, and that it actually does look quite a lot like the movies, and a lot like a prison. Uh, I mean, this one. I mean, it was a private Catholic school. Oh so well, not no, not, no, not no, that's, that that's much a, like a prison. Very nice. The first, like, like I just like kind of like reminded me the the first uh high school it was a high school like school it was a charter school in cleveland um and that was actually in a not that great neighborhood and it had like the metal detectors and everything so that did actually seem much more than uh, like a prison so i know what these places look like from the inside but like i kind of forget because i didn't grow up in them so and then i go back and I'm like oh yeah there's the thing with the flag everywhere and no oh, uh, yeah. you know so that's there's a lot of patriotism in them yeah, there high schools yeah because the you know like the whole thing with the uh, the flag salesman who invented the, the pledge of allegiance and it's just yeah it's just weird <laughs> it is very weird and it was a great sales project on his part so did you do anything else in kalamazoo besides for go to the reunion or just turn around and come right back uh we, i mean we stayed at uh like the friends of hers um they have a i don't know, like a lake cottage at gull lake oh wow uh so that was nice outside right of, outside of richland um, which is kind of, I don't know, I guess, ap- ap- apropos, uh, the name. Richland. Um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that was nice. It's like the same lake that uh, that Alfred Kellogg, I guess, had his mention, or, like, Oof. one of his mentions on. Um, I mean, it was not, like, the, the part where we stayed was not, like, that um, that that rich, but still fairly, fairly right. decent. So that was pretty nice. Yeah, that part of the world as well, that Kellogg's and uh, mm. the health uh, the whole focus on uh, grains and cereals, that whole thing started up around Battle Creek. So, yeah, it goes all the way over to Kalamazoo. My, my life lately, Sebastian, has been a nightmare, which is consistent with how my life has been this entire year. First in March, I was told by doctors that, that I was, quote, at death's door with a 60-40 chance of survival from a horrible infection that led to life-threatening sepsis, which required numerous medical procedures that continued for four months recovery from which I'm told will take now over a year. Then a couple weeks ago, two women were shot while sitting in their car by the corner where I live. I'm very sorry to report that one of those women, Alicia Lewis, has passed away. Our condolences to Alicia's family. Since then, there have been at least two shootings reported down our block again in just the last couple of weeks, although I'm certain one was fireworks, but anxious neighbors just misreported it to the police. However, there were a lot of police on the street. So my horrible reaction to the new vaccine and flu shot last week obviously pales in comparison, but that hell continued last Thursday at 4.30 in the morning when the pipes to the toilet of our downstairs neighbor in the three-flat where I live, a neighbor who is a hoarder, burst flooding their bathroom. I had a throbbing headache from the vaccine. I had pain in all of my extremities and all my joints felt like they were made of wood, making it difficult for me to walk or do anything. So my partner she runs downstairs and discovers that our neighbor's bathroom was like two feet deep full of garbage. My non-wife had to dig through the trash to get to the pipes to turn off the water. And then next, the very next afternoon, Friday, 
we went down to clean up the mess using a snow shovel to dig through the mess to get the get to the floor which was soaked through causing white water to leak into the basement basement and onto boxes of cassette tapes that were the original recordings of years of This Is Hell broadcasts, luckily. That, that was before the, the the floods yesterday. Yes, and then we had a little bit of flooding in our basement from that, so luckily everything was off the floor. We know better than to leave anything on the floor. But luckily, all of those recordings, producer Richard Norwood had already digitized. So, uh, again, back in, you know, so, so just to say, <laughs> I repeat, 2022 has been a freaking nightmare for me so far, so I'm really looking forward to this week's weekend's party because... Both me and the love of my life need a freaking break. All that said, Sebastian, please share with us this week's question from hell for our listening audience. This week's question from hell is uh, this week's question from hell anniversary edition. In the 26th year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is hell, to yourself the loudest? Repeat, (laughs) uh, this week's question from hell is... In the 26th year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is hell, to yourself the loudest? I like your writing of it this week and your uh, the way that the st- staccato way in which you delivered it. Yeah, right? I'm just channeling my inner Ben Shapiro. I <laughs> see. Don't do that anymore. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, face covering, face mask, coffee mug, trucker's cap, winter hat... Uh, the This Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. All of that merchandise will also be available during the anniversary party this Saturday, September 17th. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer. By the end of this week's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell, and Sebastian has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is a questionable cure from a questionable source that cites a less than authoritative TikTok video. <laughs> Uh, the New York Post article, Is This Chinese Herbal Medicine the Ultimate Hangover Cure? reports, a staple in Chinese medicine cabinets could be your next hangover cure. Uh, the headache-relieving remedy is said to be a herbal formula developed more than 100 years ago. So pretty young for Chinese medicine, I guess. Yeah, I Originally you. meant for gastrointestinal issues. A business is pitching the pills as a hangover treatment on TikTok. Pochai pills as they're called, use several herbs to reduce upset stomachs and nausea, plus alleviate uh, the crippling hangover effects of headaches and drowsiness, according to the business's website. The miracle morsels allegedly help to alleviate headaches, motion sickness, vomiting, diarrhea, and indigestion, among other unsettling symptoms. Li Xiuke developed the pint-sized pills. Pint-sized? I know. Uh, in 1896 in Foshan, a city in the Guangdong province, and they were manufactured there until 1949, according to the South China Morning Post. Uh, 
The miracle pill hit a wave of contra controversy in 2010, however, when the company reportedly revealed some of the pills were contaminated with chemicals said to allegedly raise blood pressure and even cause cancer, the South China Morning Post said. Flash forward to today, however, and the pills seem to be making a comeback with a number of TikTok users who claim to be familiar with them boasting about Po Chai pills benefits. That makes this week's hangover cure very suspect. Coming up, despite what we may think or are being told, today's Supreme Court is not that different from what it has always been. We'll uh, tell you what happened on last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Sebastian will also have the latest installment of the past inside the present on the historical context we need to better understand our current world today. And we'll tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from the United States and the unfulfilled promise of democracy. This is hell. And among the reasons that promise does go unfulfilled is because of the Supreme Court, which we were all likely taught was a pillar of democracy. But historic evidence reveals it is far less than democratic. The court determines the law, but is that law just when it comes to fairly treating all people equally in the United States, which is supposed to be a bedrock of society or based on the nation's founding documents, at least I thought it was, here to help us all have a better understanding of what the court is and what the court is not. Historian, writer, and editor Steve Frazier returns to This Is Hell to discuss his new Tom Dispatch article, the Trump Supreme Court is nothing new, a history of the tyranny of the Supremes. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Steve. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I was eaves eavesdropping on your show. You just you just survived a a year a year from hell. I mean, I'm I'm sympathetic. Well, you just take a year off. Yeah, thank you very much. I would like to. And that's why I, my whole uh, stock portfolio right now is full of lottery tickets, Steve. So that's, <laughs> that's my whole plan. It's my business model right now. So, so you write, uh, has, the Supreme, uh, has the Trump Supreme Court gone rogue? The evidence mounts a woman's right to get an abortion, gone. Uh, meanwhile, voting rights are barely hanging on, along with the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act that gave them life. State legislatures, so the court ruled, may no longer reign in wanton availability of firearms, and so the bloodshed will inev inevitably follow. Climate catastrophe will not get closer as the Supremes have moved to disarm the EPA's efforts to reduce carbon emissions. Religion, excluded from the public arena since the nation's founding, can now invade the classroom thanks to the court's latest pronouncement. This renegade court is anything but finished doing its mischief. Affirmative active, uh, action may be next on the chopping block. Gerrymandering long and ignoble tradition in American political life could become unconstrained if the Supreme Court and the Supremes decide to exempt such practices from state court judicial review. And who knows what they're likely to rule when every election not won by the Republican Party may be liable to a lawsuit. So for many, these are all very frightening rulings. Uh, to what extent does the Supreme Court have the power to dictate, if you will, which party is in power or who the voters elect as president? How much can rulings by the Supreme Court, in your opinion, be a threat to the democracy I thought it was supposed to uphold with law? Well, as the, as the, the cases and, and, and decisions you just recited make clear, Clearly, the court has enormous power to undermine democracy. It has done so over the last 
uh, few months, uh, but it's, it's always done that to one degree or another, with some exceptions since the founding of the court, which uh, coincides, of course, with the founding of the country uh, and uh, was made uh, possible by the Constitution back in 1787. The court was implicitly given the rule to restrain the democratic rights uh, of people. Uh, and in fact, the Constitutional Convention itself in Philadelphia in 1787 was convened because colonial elites or uh, post-revolutionary elites were terribly concerned with what they called at the time, uh, Madison, for example, called at the time passionate majorities or factitious majorities, or, or what some people called at the time Republic, the, the Republican frenzy, and by which they meant that in the period of time running from the end of the revolution to the convening of that meeting in Philadelphia in 1787, the country was afire with social rebellion of all kinds. Uh, ordinary people, particularly farmers and others who were plagued by excessive taxation, were deeply in debt, were subject to land speculators, land monopolists, uh, currency speculators, um, rose up in rebellion in various uh, what would be states around the country. The most famous rebellion is, of course, Shays' Rebellion, which uh, occurred among uh, farmers in Western Massachusetts just before the Constitutional Convention met, in which uh, people would not only, uh, they would, for instance, release people from debtors' prisons. They would, if they occupied, I don't, I mean, I shouldn't say occupy, when they won majorities in state legislatures, they would cancel debts or declare debt moratoria. They would issue paper currency so that it would be easier for debtors to discharge their debts. Uh, they passed a whole series of laws which showed limited or no respect for private property and, and for the powerful interests like merchants and bankers and landlords and speculators whose uh, private property they were endangering. And so the convention was called in part to address that excessive, that democratic excess. And um, that's why uh, the meeting in Philadelphia was held in secret. It was a broiling hot uh, period of time in July. Every window and door at Independence Hall was closed. They didn't want anything leaking out about what they were deliberating. Uh, in fact, they were not even sent there, the delegates, to write a new constitution. They were sent there to amend the Articles of Confederation. Uh, and of course, it, it was such a contentious document that it almost didn't pass muster, both among the delegates and then in the various states. Uh, there were there were mass movements designed to stop it. And, and, uh, uh, so, and the court was conceived as one of the bulwarks against this excessive democracy. Uh, so that's why, for example, the, the Constitution prescribes lifetime terms uh, for the justice of the Supreme Court. It's why what Ben Franklin called the soul of the Constitution, inscribed in Section 10 of Article 1, says that there cannot be any impairment of private contracts. It, can, it, it gives the power of the federal government to put down insurrections that's in the, in the Constitution. And in fact, shortly after the uh, Constitution was adopted in the early 1790s, there was something called the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania, where Pennsylvania farmers uh, rose up in rebellion against the whiskey tax. Uh, George Washington sent troops commanded by Alexander Hamilton to put down that rising and that power to do so was inscribed in the constitution they had adopted. 
it's, it's why we had for almost a century, more than a century, the indirect election of senators who were elected not by the people in states, but by their state legislatures. It's why we have the electoral college. There were various ways of shielding property from the influence from the power of democratic movements, which had taken over many state legislatures. There were rebellions in Virginia, in Connecticut, in, in, uh, in Ethan Allen boys in, in Vermont. Um, and so the constitution and the court were conceived as a kind of prophylactic against this uh, excess democracy. So did the court then end the revolution, not enforce the victories of the revolution? And if so, how do we view, uh, or how should we view the Supreme Court differently today when we understand it as something that ended a revolution, not necessarily enforcing the victories of that revolution? Well, I think the first thing to note is that, of course, the opposition was so intense that we do have the Bill of Rights. They were not part of the original constitution, but the, the, the opposition to an overpowering government was so strong throughout the ex-colonies that the, the Bill of Rights establishing all the, the amendments to the constitution that we, are, we know of, the right of free speech and so on, had to be amended to get it passed. Um, so yes, uh, the, the revolution, the post-revolutionary era did preserve some of the basic civil liberties and civil rights. Of course, it said nothing about slavery. It stayed clear of touching slavery. The revolution is a misnomer in a way because it was not a social revolution. It did not disturb the distribution of property. It did not threaten slave labor, very, very carefully did not do that. But it did inscribe civil liberties and civil rights, which became something that movements, democratic movements could make use of in their struggle against uh, powerful uh, interests uh, in the country. You also write that Donald Trump's three appointments to the court, Neil Gorsuch, Brett, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, uh, cemented in place a rightward shift in its center of gravity that had begun decades earlier. And I think that's always important to stress, decades earlier. Ever since in 1986, President Ronald Reagan appointed William Rehnquist, a staunch conservative, as chief justice, the court has only become ever more averse to regulating business, even as it worked to reduce the power of the federal government. How much do you think that is an accurate reflection of public sentiment? Did the court rule this way because that was the way society was moving? Uh, no, it probably ruled that way because society was moving in the other direction. Um, that's, 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 the, that's the mechanism. That's the syndrome. You have movements afoot in, in the country, in American society, that want to rein in the power of powerful interests, uh, especially corporate interests. And the court has functioned often, not always, to, to check that kind of democratic impulse. Do you know between 1970 and 2000, around 2000, the number of, um, uh, of, of, of pro-business decisions by the Supreme Court tripled? Um, this is one of the in indices of a court which, uh, you know, coming out of the 60s, there was a lot of anti-corporate feeling in the country. And we do get some of the most important regulatory legislation uh, 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 the, the EPA is born then, OSHA is born then, and so on. And so the court functions, especially with Rehnquist becoming chief justice in 86, um, more and more to unravel those kinds of regulatory uh, uh, difficulties that the business community uh, was facing, to more and more uh, release the power of big business. The most striking uh, decision it's made in its more recent history, of course, 
is Citizens United, which essentially treats the corporation as a person, and that person has the right to contribute to uh, political campaigns, and it's, it's, it's enhanced the enormous overpowering influence of big money to determine what happens politically in the country. That same court, uh, an early, while Rehnquist was actually still chief justice, made George W. Bush the president of the United States rather than Al Gore in stopping the recount of the Florida vote, which we don't, we'll never know what seemed likely to favor Gore's election as president. So the, the court has again and again uh, uh, functioned as it was designed to. You know, uh, Tocqueville, uh, the great uh, French writer about American democracy in the early 19th century described uh, the judiciary as America's high political class. And um, he, he, he was right about that. The court has functioned that way uh, again and again. And most notoriously during the long period running from right after the Civil War, right up to the Great Depression of the 1930s is its most uh, uh, reactionary period of a ruling on behalf of capital and against labor, against farmers, against black people. And I can go into that if you'd like. Yeah, and we will in just a moment. You write that this march to the right was in stark contrast to the earlier deliberations of the court led by Chief Justice Earl Warren. The Warren Court was, of course, best known for its landmark 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education decision striking down public school segregation. It would also become the judicial centerpiece of a post-World War II liberal order that favored labor unions, civil rights, government oversight of business, and the welfare state. Historically speaking, however, the Warren Court was the exception, not the one cobbled together by Donald Trump and effectively, if not officially, presided over by Justice Clarence Thomas. The Supremes were born to be bad. If the current conservative court is the norm, how much of a role has the court played in advancing conservatism in the United States? Is the court uh, generally conservative because the United States is, or again, is the U.S. conservative because the court is? Uh, that, that's, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I should mention uh, that, of course, the court has taken the lead in defending the most reactionary interests uh, in the country. Uh, the most infamous decision the court ever made uh, is the Dred Scott decision uh, in, in, in 1857, uh, which uh, essentially said no black person, free or slave, could be a citizen of the United States, uh, that Slavery was legitimate everywhere in the Union, in every territory over which the federal government had uh, had a power, uh, and that if a slave made it into a free state, it didn't matter that he remained the property of his owner. And this 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 incredibly uh, decision was in defense of the of the of the plantation, obviously elite, and became one of the most important moments in the lead up, the immediate lead up to the Civil War. It enraged abolitionists around the country. Lincoln talks about it in his 1861 inaugural address. Um, and it, uh, because it, undo, it undid the only compromise which had kept the Union together for decades. That is the Missouri Compromise, which said, okay, you can have slavery south of this particular latitude. You can't have slavery north of it. And the court said, no, the, this Dred Scott decision. Uh, the chief justice, by the way, was a Southern aristocrat, aristocrat named John Taney, uh, Roger Taney, 
uh, said, no, there is no more Missouri Compromise. Slavery is legitimate everywhere in the country. So the court has again and again played an activist role in defending, uh, in, in defending conservative, uh, uh, conservative interests. And, and, and well, I'll stop there. I don't know where you want to go with this. That's what I was going to actually ask you about the activist court in general, because uh, the Heritage Foundation, and yes, I think this is the first time in 26 years of being on air that I've actually cited the Heritage Foundation. Uh, they define uh, judicial activism or an activist court as judicial activism occurs when judges decide cases based on their personal preferences and in spite of the text of the Constitution, statutes, and applicable precedent. Judges are not charged with deciding whether a law leads to good or bad results, but with whether it violates the Constitution. So again, in a case like Dred Scott, uh, can we blame the court for the ruling or should we blame the law? Did the already well, written law lead to the justices ruling all black, black people or not uh, uh, citizens of the United States? It, it, because, you know, the way that you're depicting it, it sounds like the, an activist court, which is something that all conservatives are supposedly against, is the norm. It's not an anomaly. Well, you know, I think what we have to blame in the end is the distribution of power and wealth uh, in the country, because uh, in the end, the court is there to defend that existing distribution of power and wealth. Um, and I think that's uh, proven true again and again and again in the court's uh, history. It's not so much, in other words, it's the underlying structure of power and wealth, not so much the even the personal dispositions of the justices, although Taney was a Southern aristocrat. And in the Gilded Age, the court was filled with guys who had been ex-railroad and steel and iron company lawyers. But even if they hadn't been, their, their, their proclivity is to defend the status quo, the existing order. Uh, and and, and uh, so, for example, you, you talk about what's in the Constitution and how to, what, are they enforcing it or not? It's how they read it. And, and how they read it is informed by the powerful interests in the country. Give, I'll give you a classic example of that. In, after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment was passed, which guaranteed to ex-slaves uh, the full civil liberties due to any American citizen. Uh, uh, subject to due process, et cetera, and so forth. It was designed to enhance the free status of emancipated slaves and to ensure that their, their freedom would not be uh, impinged upon by still very powerful Southern interests. Okay, that's the 14th Amendment. Uh, and the 15th Amendment, of course, ensured uh, the right to vote to ex-slaves, to, to uh, uh, African-Americans. Okay, now, um, it, that's passed right after the Civil War. About 20 years later, the court is making rulings about whether or not a businesses can be regulated by governments. Many state le legislatures around the country had passed regulatory laws uh, determining what uh, a railroad could charge farmers for hauling his goods, what a grain elevator operator could charge for storing the grain, or whether, whether monopolies could charge monopolistic prices. These, these laws were passed by state legislatures subject to the democratic will of their populations. There were laws passed uh, that uh, coal and other kinds of companies could not force their, could not pay their workers in script, which means company money, which then those workers had to use, could only could use at company stores 
to buy outrageously priced necessities, okay? The court is faced with these laws passed by state legislatures. They're faced with laws uh, and, uh, that regulate, um, well, that try to protect uh, the well-being of working people. So for example, there, there, there are laws passed to regulate uh, the number of hours workers can work. The number, the minimum wages, whether ch children can work, whether women can work, and so on. These laws are passed all over the country by state legislatures. The court rules, I'm getting to my point, I'm sorry I've gone on like this. The court rules, no, you can't do any of this. All of these laws are unconstitutional because they violate, and this is the irony, the 14th Amendment, the same amendment that was used to guarantee ex-slaves their civil liberties in the country. So there's the 14th Amendment. Its language is its language. It's not a question of whether it's in the Constitution or not in the Constitution. It's how you read it. And they read it like that. And I'll give you another example of that if you, if you, if you like. Uh, there, there's there's, a, there's a, a law passed in 1890. Uh, it's still a law in the books called the Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Antitrust Act was passed uh, again, because there was overwhelming movements against the power of monopoly businesses in the country. This is the era of the great trusts, uh, you know, the Rockefellers and so on. Um, and these laws are passed. This law is passed to break up trust when they're in, uh, uh, when they uh, are deemed to be in restraint of trade. Okay. That law, the Sherman Antitrust Act, is almost never, it is used sometimes against some corporations like U.S. Steel and so on. It is mainly overwhelmingly used against labor unions. And the labor unions who strike, say the union calls a strike or a boycott, a secondary boycott, because in the late 19th century, there was enormous sympathy for the well-being of workers and workers on strike that were being treated so badly. The court rules that these strikes are illegal and, and issues injunctions to stop them and sends federal troops to break them up and kills people in doing so because those strikes they rule are in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. That is to say, they, they are in restraint of trade. They are conspiracies, the court rules, in restraint of trade. So the law is there. You can read it any way you want to read it. The, the law clearly was not designed to break up unions and stop strikes, but the court, what's called the Lochner Court, and I'll tell you why in a second, rules that that is really the import of the law to stop uh, unions uh, uh, from existing or conducting strikes. Okay, go, you uh, just continue on. So uh, why is it called the Lochner Court? I want to make sure that people understand oh, this yeah, point as well. Well, one of the laws that's passed, it's passed in New York State, tries to uh, establish, get this, maximum hours for bakers. Uh, bakers who are working in tenement uh, workshops, terribly ill-ventilated, they're breathing in the flour, they're getting sick, uh, they're getting lung diseases. They work 75 to 100 hours a week. The law in New York State says you can't work, that we, the maximum has got to be 60 hours a week, right? 60. <laughs> to us, it sounds, how could they possibly even conceive of working that long? The court, uh, the, the, the baker uh, who sues New York State uh, 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 under this law is a man named Lochner. He has a bakery up in Utica, New York. Anyway, uh, the court rules that that law establishing maximum hours for bakers is unconstitutional because it interferes with, get this, this is also under the 14th Amendment, the freedom of contract. What the court is saying is this, however outlandish this may seem, that the employer 
capital on the one hand and labor on the other hand are equal contractual partners. That is to say, they have equal rights, equal power. They can in, enter into any bargain they want. The bakers agreed to work, whatever it was, 75 hours a week. So it was their choice uh, to do so. And therefore, uh, the state should not interfere with that freedom of contract that the bakers. Now, you know, many people in the country said, knew, I mean, they're, they're, they're looking at a country in which people, there's abject poverty, uh, there's a, a, an enormous, obvious exploitation going on, endless hours, uh, very low wages, the indignity of being uh, at the beck and call of your employer. Everybody knows that there's no equality between the employer on the one hand and the laborer on the other hand, but the court says, yes, there is. It's and uses the 14th Amendment, uh, which guarantees freedom of contract and the constitution, which guarantees it, um, to say, well, no, you know, you can't have a law like that because it interferes. And they use that rationale again and again to outlaw even child labor laws. Uh, the only time they allow child labor laws to, uh, be, to sustain them was in situations in which they said both women who also were uh, uh, sometimes protected by maximum hour laws, that they were inferior and therefore not able to exercise their contractual equality, right? Because they're inferior beings. So yes, the, the state has a right to interfere in that situation and protect them. Otherwise, uh, you, you, here's another example. You know, there were yellow dog contracts all throughout the 19th. You know, there's a period of enormous organizing, mobilizing, you have the populist movement, you have the Knights of Labor, you have all this tumult going on, just like in the revolutionary period in a way. And the court steps forward to, to deal with this. So uh, uh, employers, one way they respond to this unionizing, organizing effort is to compel employees. You want a job? You have to sign what's called the yellow dog contract. A yellow dog contract is a promise on your part that you will never join a trade union. Well, there was a law I forget now which state it was passed in, outlawing yellow dog contracts. The court said, no, that law is unconstitutional because it interferes with this freedom of contract. So uh, so the, the big answer, the, the underlying answer to your question is it doesn't matter in a way what the, what the words of the law say. It does matter. Of course it matters. But if the, the court in its, can use its prerogative to interpret that language as it chooses, and most of the time, it chooses to interpret that language in ways that defend the interests of the powerful. So to what degree, then, is it a mistake for those on the left to call for a return of the Sherman Act and the Antitrust Act to solve all of our problems when it comes to uh, corporate power, when it comes to anti-union policies? Uh, how much of a mistake is it for us to look towards the Sherman Act as a savior for uh, the problems that we're having with corporate power and the lack of union organizing? Well, you know, it's all a question of what muscle you can bring to bear. I don't think it's a mistake to say the Sherman Antitrust Act is supposed to ban, uh, uh, you know, trust and restraint of trade and, it, and give people an opportunity to have their own. I, I think it's a great idea. The question is, do you have the mobilized social power among working people, middle class people to, to, to create enough teeth behind that law that the court is compelled? So, for example, the Warren Court. The Warren Court does what we know it did, which was great, um, uh, in helping to dismantle segregation, especially. It did other things as well that were good. Why? Well, 
there was enough power that had been mobilized in the 1930s during the Great Depression, um, both the labor movement, movements among the unemployed, uh, farmer movements to stop mass evictions during the depths of the Depression. Um, and then after the 30s, in the, during the war and after the war, the growth of, a, of an increasingly powerful civil rights movement, that the Warren Court becomes the functionary of a new dispensation of power. I don't mean to say that suddenly big capital wasn't in charge, but there was a much, there was a much more robust voice in public affairs held by particularly a very powerful labor movement, which had a kind of social conscience, wasn't simply trying to protect its own immediate interests, by a civil rights movement, and then later uh, in the court's life, uh, a, a, a women's liberation movement. So it's a question of not the law itself. The que one question it is for the left is what do you do about this court? Uh, you know, uh, during this period of the Lochner court, there was enormous resistance to the court. Um, and various proposals were made by everybody from Teddy Roosevelt to Eugene Debs uh, to, to reform it, to do away with it, to end lifetime terms, uh, to make judges electable, to uh, uh, make it, if you wanted to invalidate a law, you had to, uh, it had to be a seven to two supermajority to do that. Uh, proposals that the Congress, a majority of the Congress be given the power to recall a judge, a Supreme Court judge, who had violated whatever they thought his constitutional duty was. So there were all kinds of, of reforms afoot uh, called for. Now, they didn't work. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and the Lochner court continued to do mischief right up until the early New Deal. It actually outlawed some of the key pieces of recovery legislation that the Roosevelt administration passed in the early 30s, the most important being the economic, uh, the national uh, Recovery Act, which was Roosevelt's principal piece of legislation to get the, con the economy moving, and they declared it unconstitutional. But by the mid-30s, the, the, the social movement, the political movements in the country were so powerful uh, that, um, uh, and Roosevelt's landslide election in, in 19, re-election in 1936 made the court less and more and more leery of bucking things, and then some of the justices were finally aging out. Roosevelt still faced a dilemma. He tried to pack the court which people are proposing now today, that one proposal be that, uh, it, well, Roosevelt's proposal was that for every justice reaching the age of 70 who would serve for at least 10 years, an additional justice should be uh, appointed up to a number, I think a maximum of six justices. And people even talk about that kind of thing today. I think what we need to do, you know, there's a kind of air, an aura of sanctity, uh, of, of sacredness that surrounds the court. And we got to get over that. Uh, uh, they're just, you know, a now now women. There used to be just a bunch of guys with, you know, powerful ties, uh, who, you know, uh, knew the law. Uh, but uh, there was nothing. There was nothing sacred about this institution ever, from from when it began. Uh, you know, uh, you know when it began. You know, Madison actually wanted there to be give the court the power uh, to veto legislation before it could pass. Uh, he, that proposal never went. But anyway, what I'm saying is uh, we, we've got to desanctify uh, the court and eliminate, dilute some of its power, make it more subject to uh, the democratic will. Now, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an argument, uh, which it's called the counter-majoritarian argument. 
and it has a certain uh, traction. Why? Look, when the Warren Court again uses the 14th Amendment and other laws to begin to dismantle segregation, this is a violation of the civil liberties of citizens of the United States. What it's also doing is undoing the tyranny of white local democratic majorities in the South. In other words, that's why that's called the counter majority. There's no question that local majorities can do great damage as this segregation is a, is a, is a majoritarian view uh, in places throughout the South for you know, half a century or more than half a century. So the court, there needs to be some proviso for, for that kind of thing. But in the end, uh, we have to treat the court like any other institution made up of normal human beings whose powers need to be um, uh, 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 constrained. We are speaking with historian, writer, and editor Steve Frazier, who returns to This Is Hell to discuss his new Tom Dispatch piece. The Trump Supreme Court is nothing new, a history of the tyranny of the Supremes. You were mentioning about the uh, Supreme Court being as kind of a bulwark against populism. Does it matter the kind of populism that is being forwarded? Does the court rule against what might be considered left-wing populism as much as it protects against what is understood as right-wing populism? And is that what the United United States wants to make certain that it, uh, it is not uh, being judged or ruled by some sort of extreme nature of left or right wing politics. Well, I think it's 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 proclivity is to rule and has been since its birth to rule against a left wing uh, populism. Uh, it's it's abortion decision and so on is is you might be interpreted as a as a empowering of right wing populism. Um, uh, obviously, uh, <laughs> the right wing may regret, regret that victory uh, in the elections that are coming up. Nonetheless, uh, the court in doing that, uh, the court in whittling away at uh, voting rights is also uh, listening to a kind of right wing populist uh, movement of resentment of white nationalism and, and so on, which is a real dangerous, scary reality in America today. There's no question about that. And to this, the court is very friendly. Um, it has never been friendly to left-wing populism or to socialism or to the labor movement. You know, part of the record of this, what is the Ren was the Rehnquist court and now is this ongoing conservative court has been undoing labor legislation. You know, the Warren court was friendly to it. Uh, the Roosevelt administration was compelled by the labor movement to pass labor laws of various kinds. But many, much of that labor protective legislation uh, uh, has been undone during the this long era of a, of a conservative court, which long predated Trump's court, um, in whittling away the rights uh, to organize uh, and so on. So when it comes to left-wing populism or labor movement politics or socialist politics, uh, the court is decidedly unfriendly. You write that beyond those circles, however, segregation had become increasingly repellent in a culture ever more infused with the multi-ethnic sympathies and cosmopolitanism of the New Deal era. Cosmopolitanism is the belief that all people are entitled to equal respect and consideration no matter what their citizenship status or other affiliations happens to be. So is the court, historically in its rulings, is the court 
anti-cosmopolitanism? Is that another thing that it's constantly focused on, just like it's anti-working class, just like it seems yes, to be enforcing I, I think, of a yeah, patriarchy? I think, it is. I think that's right. I think that's uh, well put. I mean, it wasn't during the war in years, but otherwise generally has been. You know, uh, the antipathy uh, of elites for the lower orders often takes on a kind of racial or ethnic uh, kind of character. You know, when uh, the court ruled uh, uh, in, uh, I don't know if your listeners know, uh, the, mo the most famous decision of the 19th century court was Plessy versus Ferguson, which essentially said segregation is legitimate. And one of the judges on that court, this was the Lochner court, um, that ruling in this case on a racial matter, said, you know, uh, uh, white supremacy, and this is a quote, is, quote, in the nature of things. Um, and, and, and so uh, uh, there's, there's always been a kind of, and, you know, and, and the court has often re re referred, for instance, uh, in one of the decisions in the 19th century, during the Gilded Age in the 19th century, labor leaders were referred to by the court as ignoramuses. Um, uh, in other words, there's a kind of, there's a kind of, contempt and arrogance, a kind of sense of superiority, inferiority that lurks behind the attitude. You know, the lower orders, which our uh, founding fathers often referred to, are often racialized. And I don't mean the way we normally assume all of that too, but that is they're the wrong skin color. It's that their very existence as uh, of doing the work of society, right? Uh, is is it denigrates them, devalues them, makes them less than uh, you know they're the offal of society. Immigrant workers, for example, were treated that way uh, for decades. And one of the hallmarks of the cosmopolitanism of the New Deal is the kind of elevation, so to speak, of this immigrant working class, which had fought for itself. And found founded these unions and 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 paid the price, but it it elevated their stature uh, in, in in the country, uh, and the court is compelled the Warren court compelled to, to acknowledge that in 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 the way it rules. In the way that you describe the court, that it often rules uh, against equality. Uh, how difficult is it to address inequality? Something many politicians, including President Barack Obama, made a big deal about towards the end of his second term in office. Uh, so how difficult is it to address inequality when the court seems to rule in support of inequality? Is the United States an unequal nation, again, because of the Supreme Court? Yeah, well, the court plays its role. I think in the end, what I would argue is, uh, although there are many, the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, there are laws on the books establishing the formal equality of people. And there are, and, and, and through constitutional amendment, for example, uh, women's right to vote and so on, that formal equality has been extended to wider and wider sections of the population, sometimes uh, at uh, the with the resistance of the court, but what I would say about your question is this: that in the end, the question is not about enforcing existing laws, although that's important. It's about capitalism. That capitalism breeds inequality in its nature. You have a small coterie of people who own the means that everybody else in our society depends on to live. That endows them with enormous power. Unless you address that, inequality will remain. Uh, deeply embedded in our society, no matter how vigorously 
you enforce the formal equality that's been inscribed in our laws for 200 years. So this whole idea of putting profits before people, some people might think that this is new yeah. with neoliberalism. Is this not anything new with neoliberalism? Has the Supreme well, Court been enforcing neoliberalism since before there was neo- neoliberalism? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, you know, those laws that were passed by state legislatures in the 19th century trying to regulate business or protect labor and so on, those were laws that said, wait a second here, property is not all there is. We are a move, we are a democratic movement, movements trying to restrain, constrain, uh, domesticate, civilize property and its power, uh, and 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 that's that's what they were really uh, trying to do, and that's what the court was uh, hell bent on preventing, uh, and um, so yeah, uh, that that's uh, that's that's what the struggle uh, is all about, you know, um, that 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 uh, uh, property as the Constitution wanted to protect it, cannot be unrestrained uh, and uh, and uh, given free reign. You also write that justice is supposed to be non-political, but that has never been the case. In your opinion, is that possible? Is that something that we want to have a non-political justice? Well, we want that, but it's not realistic. These The Warren Court was political. Uh, just as much as the Lochner court was political, or Trump's court is obviously political. Uh, what you want is a kind of fair-mindedness, uh, which uh, this court, this this rogue Trump court, and has lost entirely. Where where really um, uh, it, 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 they are just a, a political agents of of a, of a movement. You want to have a sense of greater fair-mindedness and a greater sense of accountability, which is why I think uh, uh, desanctifying and restraining the court, limiting its powers, uh, restoring powers to uh, democratic majorities is, is important uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in trying to accomplish that. If in the United States, then, law and order are, you know, the way that you describe it, disconnected from justice and democracy, then what form of democracy does exist within the United States today? How would you define today's day? Well, it's more and more limited. Obviously, the money, money, and this has been true for a long, long time, money speaks a lot louder than, uh, than people in determining what the laws shall be, how, shall, how they shall be enforced, uh, and so on. Uh, you know, uh, all, 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 the, all we can do is to organize and mobilize. And sometimes the court overreaches itself. So, for example, I think the, the, um, the, uh, uh, the Roe, ver, uh, Roe uh, versus Wade, uh, uh, sorry, uh, decision may come back to haunt them politically. That Kansas vote is very telling. Uh, Republican candidates around the country are running away from their kind of most extreme positions on abortion. Uh, and uh, the fact that women are apparently enrolling to vote in enormous numbers now uh, suggests, now that there's, there's no panacea here, that's not gonna change everything. Uh, but what I'm saying is it's that kind of mobilization, democratic mobilization, um, which is really uh, uh, really the only hope uh, to, uh, to rein in uh, the power of the, the court and to perhaps even eliminate from it the power of judicial review, which some people have a call for, um, which uh, was established very on, early on in the life of the court. 
One last question for you, Steve. We have been speaking with historian, writer, editor Steve Frazier. He has returned to This Is Held to discuss his new Tom Dispatch article, The Trump Supreme Court is Nothing New, A History of the Tyranny of the Supremes. As always, Steve, our final question is the question from hell. The question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. I've (laughs) asked this one in the past to many historians or economists. It always annoys them. You write from the beginning the Supreme Court was conceived as a bulwark against excessive democracy, as indeed was the Constitution itself. So, Steve, are those on the right, are reactionaries, conservatives, correct, when they say the United States is not and was never intended to be a democracy? Well, that's a tough question to answer. They're right in some ways. Uh, the, the, the kind of anxiety and concerns that the founding fathers had about excessive democracy were real. They knew what a threat it could become to a, to entrenched interests. So in a certain way, they're not, but uh, they're right. Uh, obviously, in, in other respects, they're, they're wrong. Uh, this, the suffrage was opened eventually to everybody. That's, uh, that's a remarkable achievement in, in, in 18th century uh, life in, in Europe um, and the United States. Um, the, the progressive expansion of basic formal civil and political rights to wider and wider sections of the population suggests that there is a kind of democratic impulse, uh, you know, uh, so that it's a it's a it's 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 a dilemma. It's a it's a it's a confrontation. It's a confrontation between democracy and property. Um, and uh, if the right conservatives certainly argue that, uh, and they argue this in part because they say most people are not fit to rule. This is another version of the kind of racial racializing, so to speak, that there's a kind of inferior mass that isn't qualified to rule and that the best results come when elites are allowed to rule. Now, there was, I, I don't know how much time you got, but there was a Supreme Court justice, very famous one, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who objected to the Lochner. He was on the court. He objected to its decision. And he said, you know, the court was not set up to inscribe in law Social Darwinism, that's not a, a quote, but it's what he meant. Um, and, and, and he said, you know, he, that we're a democracy, that there isn't elite, an elite that is fittest to rule and that laws that, is, that protect the fit and don't worry about the unfit are good because they make the society uh, and rise to its surface the most the fit, best equipped to run society. Conservatives believe that um, and uh, have you know, always believe that. Andrew Carnegie believed that. Um, he, he felt he was he was a steward of his wealth, and he would decide what best to do with it because the people were unfit, unqualified to make those kinds of decisions. That's a strain in conservative thinking. Uh, so there's a conflict. Uh, there's a confrontation. There is now. Bernie Sanders refers to it again and again. Um, and um, uh, so the outcome, I don't know. <laughs> Well, on that happy note, Steve, it's always a pleasure having you on the show again. Steve Frazier has written a new piece at Tom Dispatch, The Trump Court is Nothing New. Make certain that you check out our interviews with Steve from the being on the show in the past. Just go to thisishell.com and search on his last name, Fraser. We've had him on in the past to discuss his books, Class Matters, The Strange Career of an American Delusion, and The Limousine Liberal, How an Incendiary Image United the Right and uh, Fractured America. And also check out his most recent book, Mongrel Firebugs and Men of Property, Capitalism and Class Conflict in American 
uh, history. Thank you so much for being back on the sh- uh, show, Steve. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always really appreciate your historical perspective and the context that you offer to the show. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you being- very much. A pleasure to be on. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Steve. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. If that conversation with Steve on the undemocratic Supreme Court and its uh, use of justice that historically looks a lot like apartheid. If that was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Last week on Patreon, I had the realization that for me, vacation can be a double-edged sword, if not triple-edged, which you would seem, you would think is impossible, just as working eight days a week is impossible. But during the holidays, that's exactly what I end up doing. Vacations are meant to be a time away from work, and for me, that means a time to decompress and re-examine all the topics discussed on the show since the last time we were on break, and reconsidering the unique perspectives of our guests like Steve that have most recently challenged my worldview. But when the court you uh, when the when the work you do is manufacturing dissent for whatever reason, I am often asked to defend those points of view, which again are not mine, but our guests. Not that anyone else who is enjoying a holiday or vacation with me is ever asked to defend the career they've chosen, but there I am, despite being on vacation, right back at work. My vacations start with the culture shock of leaving the city for the country and end with the culture shock of returning from a cabin on a peaceful lake or celebrating the holidays with families, only to be be back here voluntarily subjecting my reality to its own culture shock. The parallel universes where I travel between vacation and work can be, again for me, Pretty overwhelming. We also shared a 2012 conversation with writer and journalist Barbara Ehrenreich, who recently passed away. The talk we featured on Patreon was on Barbara's then-just-released book, Bright-Sided, How Positive Thinking is Undermining America, Barbara's story of being hospitalized and being subjected to all the cliché ways in which we are meant to consider recovery, is refreshingly scathing and not to be missed. Uh, And this week, this coming week, on Thursday on Patreon, we will be featuring another talk we had with Barbara in 2009 when we discussed her just-published, again, a Tom Dispatch piece, Are Women Getting Sadder or Are We All Just getting a lot more gullible. But the only way you can hear me talk about the impact of vacation's alternative reality in a conversation with the late great Barbara Ehrenreich on the problems with positive thinking is by subscribing to This Is Hell, becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, which again, this week airs on Thursday. Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, in the 26-year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is hell, to yourself the loudest? I think for me, that would be when I fell asleep in the middle of an interview during a (laughs) five-hour show. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, why, why? Why did you even try doing, doing a five-hour show? Because yeah, it was it's... hey, it was the battle for Seattle. I wanted to get all those people live from Seattle mm. on the air, and then okay. immediately yeah, after the yeah, show, yeah. I got shingles. It was really a great week for me. Basically. What? <laughs> Good God. Anyway, um, our very own uh, Jeff Dorchin says the one hundred percent audience crew and even Scruffy's rejection of Scruffy. Um, that must have been long before my time. 
It's a character that uh, Jeff came up with that was a complete failure. <laughs> Nobody okay, liked it. Okay. I thought it was kind of funny. Nobody uh, else liked it. I, I, isn't Scruffy the the janitor in Futurama or something? Yes, I, he is. Nice call. Yeah. Very nice call. Anyway, uh, and then uh, Letty, Laddie Scott O says. <laughs> Uh, when the Haitians you hate to hate hit the mic and Chuck started throwing enough F-bombs to make the FCC explode. <laughs> yes. Uh, was that an old segment? Yes, it was right so, so. during the beginning of the show. The Haitians couldn't figure out how to turn off a mic. The guys who ran the Haitian show before me, and they unplugged a mic, or they uh, t- took the mic and just threw it underneath the engineering, the mixing board. <laughs> But they left the channel on, and the channel over there, they, they would have lights to tell you that it, the channel was on, and uh, that light was out. So I had no idea of why, despite my microphone being off, people could hear me oh, talking to myself and using F-bombs over and over again. <sighs> yeah. yeah, and uh, that's it with uh, replies so, so far, far. because we just posted it. Because we just posted it. Yeah. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell uh, will get whatever piece of This Is Hell merch you want. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of our swag. Uh, we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow. Oh, some, some more of your question, or answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. And now it's time for another eagerly anticipated edition of producer and historian Sebastian Vupers look into the historical context of today's most pressing issues and stories the past inside the present take it away Sebastian the past inside the present so 9-11 yeah this again i mean it's september 12th so what do you expect me to do uh now that it's been 21 years i think we can safely call 9-11 a piece of history even though we are still living in the historic moment that in many ways began with the events events of that day um it, but what does 9-11 mean any longer today? Those 3,000 and change deaths, the destruction of American landmarks, attack on the heart of the military-industrial complex, what does that all mean today? In many ways, 9-11 is a great example to talk about what history is and how we make sense of the world, how we you know, understand historic events. So there is the thing that happened, and that thing caused ripples across global politics and society for reasons. So let's first look at what happened. So planes happened, four of them, as far as we know, two hitting the World Trade Center, one hitting the Pentagon, and one some random field. That's the what part. The who part is also pretty clear, at least on the surface. Most of the 9-11 pilots were Saudi nationals, affluent kids, radicalized. Um, But the why part is where things start to get a little difficult. Also, the why and the how are different, I think, but other historians and analysts might disagree. The why was a response to American imperialism in a very abridged, boiled-down version um, of describing why 9-11 happened. Uh, But there is a lot more to the why, however. A lot of history between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United States and Israel. Um, A lot of history involving oil and one of the richest men in Saudi and uh, one of that guy's sons. 
the way the Saudi royals had to appease the religious fundamentalist Wahhabis in their own country, or rather how the royals exported Wahhabism so that it didn't pose much of a threat to their own grip on power. I don't know if you know the story, how um, basically in order to justify towards the religious rulers of, um, well, Saudi, basically, uh, the Saudi royal family gave a lot of money to uh, the Wahhabis, uh, a, a, a kind of a, a specifically <clears throat> fundamentalist sect of Islam that um, used this money then to essentially fund uh, religious schools outside of Saudi. Um, but then also... <sighs> That attracted, that 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 in turn attracted people. That attracted a lot of like bored um, Saudi and other Arab uh, rich rich kids, basically, who then started to play modern and, and go to Afghanistan, fight the good war, fight the jihad in Afghanistan against the Soviets. Um, so like that's a long history uh, that, that that the U.S. got involved with because the U.S. gave money to the Mujahideen in Af Afghanistan to fight the, uh, the the Soviets, and that's how the whole thing eventually turned into a whole chicken coming home to roost situation. Um, yeah, and uh, well, yeah, that's that, there's just just a lot to the whole why um, thing in the question of why 9/11 really happened. Um, and then there's also the inter American intervention in Iraq, um, like the first Iraq war under uh, Bush Sr. Uh, the how is where things really get ducky, uh, as in the autocorrect version, ducky, when you want to type the other thing. Anyway, uh, so how did 9-11 happen? And so that's where, where uh, the why overlaps. The how goes beyond some dudes hijacked planes and crashed them as weapons. There were warnings, plenty of warnings, that, that something was afoot um, in September of, in August of 2001. Um, and that's when the why makes us ask about the role of the world's biggest military intelligence apparatus and how that intelligence apparatus, despite the enormous amount of money it consumes from the American taxpayer, was unable to, you know, prevent this thing from happening, because after all, it's just a bunch of dudes uh, hijacking planes. And uh, that at the time wasn't quite that well-tuned, so the intelligence apparatus wasn't that well-tuned. After that, well, now things have changed. But 9-11 was, as all things are, not caused by a single thing. It was an event that was carefully planned, but also an event where careful planning could only work because the other side didn't communicate well with itself. 9-11 was an embarrassing failure of American intelligence. Whether or not that same intelligence engineered the conspiracies, conspiracy theories afterwards that pointed to all other kinds of things, Bush himself doing it, the CIA secretly having plotted, plotted it, and, and so forth, is ultimately irrelevant. In many ways, the version where a bunch of plucky Islamic radicals managed to pull that whole thing off because American intelligence was asleep at the wheel seems the most plausible, if also the most boring, but that's just how these things usually go. Um, because, think about it, so, if... If it's actually really just a bunch of plucky Islamic radicals who managed to pull the whole thing off, 
because intelligence was asleep at the wheel that that makes intelligence look kind of bad but if you go ahead and say well you know actually it was the cia who did it that makes the cia look kind of badass and um yeah so i i i that's that's why i actually um veer on the boring side where it's it's really just a failure of american intelligence to to prevent the whole thing because nobody was talking to one another um but that doesn't get at what it all means so it's been 20 one years and a pandemic later i still remember where i was when 9-11 happened it was afternoon in berlin i was in senior year of high school and i was eating a late lunch and friends called me telling me to turn on the tv because two planes had crashed into the world trade center the two part made it clear that something was really off and i also immediately feared the american reaction to this much more than any new global reign of terror or some nonsense and, well, that happened. The American reaction was two decades of endless war, of galloping and at times creeping, well, depending on when we're looking at, American fascism. A new era, the final end of the post-war order, and the beginning of something new. But also the beginning of an age of violent hypercapitalism that used this event as an excuse to flex its mighty muscles around the world. But what about the victims? Well... What about them? We're now in the middle of a pandemic. We're not. It's not over. We're not behind it. And uh, the 3,000 and change dead of that day seem really quaint in comparison. The lamentations of those deaths today really ring hollow. They were never much more... I mean, they, they really never were much more than the excuse to exert imperial power to curb civil liberties domestically and to fan the flames of fascist nationalist fervor. But if you take a step back today and look at these things, it is quite sickening. Um, because we are told year in, year out to never forget. And then we look around today and we have as many preventable access deaths due to the pandemic basically every day or now every week, but the distinction still stands. So what about the people who are left to waste away from this virus? Because, well, it is clear that their lives count less. <laughs> or, or is it? Because there won't be a memorial for them, their their deaths were regrettably necessary to keep the system running, but then maybe the deaths of 9-11 were also necessary in that way, we just don't really see it. From today's perspective, 9-11 was the beginning of a new age of fear, justified by deaths who were used as a warning to build up a rabid bulwark against more deaths. And all of that just seems empty today. Because why did we change the way we live after 9-11? It's just absurd. We allowed all sorts of cuts to our liberties in the name of freedom from death. And then real death in the form of COVID rolls around and the country just shrugs. Can't change anything now. It's too difficult. Or maybe changing things now would enrich the wrong people. Mask manufacturers probably just don't have the same kind of lobbying power as Boeing and Lockheed Martin do. That statistically insignificant number of deaths changed our world, and the statistically relevant number of deaths, however, now is greeted with denial. Terrorism was played up as a thing that could strike anywhere and at any moment without warning and justified all kinds of crackdowns. And meanwhile, the number of damages and deaths from terrorism in the U.S. was so small that more people actually died from peanut butter allergies, not peanut butter allergies, peanut allergies since the 70s than did of terrorism, all kinds of terrorism combined in the U.S. And in that way, the war on terror is really revealing about our society. An outside attack, 
an outside attack prompts swift reaction and an overhaul of society, and COVID deaths are, in the, in the meantime, more of an inside job that Americans do to themselves, and that's fine, apparently. COVID deaths are politically not opportune. They can't be exploited quite in the same way. But then both the deaths of 9-11 and the deaths by COVID come from our government's failures, to some degree. But terrorism is a one-time thing that can be easily blown up, pun intended, to seem like something ubiquitous. While a deadly disease that, like, it is something ubiquitous that can be, is something that can be downplayed as something that only happens to other people or those who fail to prepare properly. There are a lot of things that 9-11 can be used for in terms of a teaching moment. It's a turning point in history, etc., etc. But to me, it will always be the thing where some bored rich kids played martyrs and gave the powers that be an excuse to make the world worse for everyone, which, in the grand scheme of things, almost seems like business as usual. And just another thing that makes you say, oh man, this really is hell. That is very good. This is not the media. This is hell. Wow. Uh, so one thing, a couple things I want to mention to you about that. that as far as, inter- sorry about that, internal and external threats, uh, domestic and foreign threats. And when 9-11 happened that morning before the, even the, I think it was maybe after the second plane had crashed, but not before the crashes had happened in the Pentagon or out in Pennsylvania, Dan Rather was reporting that at least 30,000 people were dead and that all they knew is that an organization with Palestine in the name was claiming responsibility. That was completely a false report, and the 30,000 people who had died was an exaggeration. And uh, he came up with that number because of the amount of people who had reported to work that day at the World Trade Center. And then every day they would have on the news, and Reuters was doing a really great job of this, they were reporting how many people were actually dead. And every week we would come here on the show and uh, announce how those numbers were constantly lowering every day, every week, till it was under, thankfully, under 4,000 people. But it was a number that was always going down. Then we have Hurricane Katrina. The first reports of death were we cannot confirm any deaths uh, as of this moment. And then as a couple deaths were reported, it was two, it was four, it was eight, it was 12. It was so slowly going up until the last report I saw was in the 800s. But recently I saw a number that was far greater than that because now they've had time to actually confirm the number of deaths that have happened. I just think it shows so much about these uh, internal and external threats, uh, foreign or domestic threats. Uh, When you see that the number that were the supposed victims of 9-11 was constantly dropping over the next few weeks, uh, was something that was highly exaggerated at the beginning. And with Katrina, it was something that was very underestimated and was constantly growing over the next few weeks. We are more than, as you were pointing out, we're more than uh, happy to attack foreign threats, but when it's a threat that we've imposed upon ourselves through something like uh, poor infrastructure and climate change, then that never seems to be as important. Sebastian, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Who are our upcoming guests this week? Tomorrow, we have Dorothy Parker, author of... Dorothy Roberts. That's my mistake. I put Parker in there (laughs) all the time. Oh, dear. Yeah, so she doesn't own an Algonquin roundtable. Okay. So this is Dorothy Roberts. Dorothy Roberts. Sorry about that. 
author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Dorothy is the George A. Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she directs the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society. Dorothy is also author of Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty. This is all about uh, the welfare system becoming a kind of uh, police for black families here in the United States, and she argues for uh, its abolition. And uh, it's it, right now I'm in the midst of reading this, and it's blowing my mind. And who's going to be on Wednesday's show? Wednesday sh- on Wednesday's show, we will have James Wilt author of Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy. James is a writer and PhD candidate based in Winnipeg, Canada. And thanks to Scott Price of CKUW in Winnipeg, who suggested James to be on the show. And of course, tomorrow we will have Rotten History. As always, we will have um, Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth wrapping up this week's show. We hope all of you will join us for the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party happening this Saturday, September 17th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood with doors opening at 3 p.m. Find details at our event page on Facebook, facebook.com slash Radio. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Voper for producing and another segment of The Past Inside the Present, Putting People Before Profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model, but at least it's consistent with how the Supreme Court rules. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>